Grace Church. If this is your first time, we want to give you a special welcome and uh, just so glad that you're here. My name is Phil. I serve as one of the elders here. And along with welcoming you, we also want to welcome another new little member to our family. And that is uh, Noah Williams. And is he right here? And so Luke and Hannah, we just rejoice with you all. So thankful. Yeah. Thankful that you're here and that he's here with us. A couple other announcements this morning. Uh, men, we have over 40 signed up for our cookout this Tuesday evening at Red Top Mountain. It'll be at Pavilion Number 7, and we're starting around 6 o'clock. So along with the cookout, we'll have um, cornhole and ladder golf, some other games, and just good fellowship together. So looking forward to that. And if you're willing to help with setup or or supper or clean up, please let either Glenn or, or me know um, for that. So that's this Tuesday. And then every Sunday, uh, we have 25 to 30 individuals who serve in our children's ministry. And we are so grateful for all of you. Just thank you for your faithfulness in this very important ministry in our church, just for loving our children, uh, teaching them about their Heavenly Father and Jesus, their Savior. And in September, which is barely two months away, I hate to think about that as we're just getting into the summer here, but we'll be starting our new children's ministry year. And with that, we're kicking off our sign-ups again for children's ministry for teachers and helpers. And along with every family who has children in children's ministry, having at least one parent sign up, um, we're also just so thankful for those of you who don't have any kids in children's ministry but serve I'm regularly in it. Some of you are older folks. Some of you are young singles or young marrieds who who serve. And without you, it, it wouldn't work. So thank you to all of you who participate. And brothers and sisters, this really is a wonderful way for us to love and serve one another here as a church family. It's a great way to get to know children in our church. I know several years ago, Carol and I had been out of children's ministry and then we step back in for a few years. And just to get to know the children, get to know families and parents, it, it's a great opportunity. I think we all look around and see people, who is that or who do those kids belong to? And children's ministry is a great way to learn that and to just be a blessing to these kids and to their parents. Um, it's also a great opportunity just learning to teach God's word in ways that children understand. It's good for all of us. And you know what? We often learn great things in the middle of teaching those lessons to them. So be on the lookout for a sign-up genius from Anita in the next week or two as we begin to prepare for the fall. So now if you will turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And while you're doing that, um, imagine that you are walking out of Home Depot into the parking lot and a young man that you don't know comes up to you and says, the name of the common wild duck is Histrionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus. Kids, can you say that with me three times? Histrionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus. Now you understand everything he said, but you have no idea what, what in the world was that about. So you're trying to make sense of it, but there's no way to make sense of it unless you understand the story behind that little interaction, right? So you're trying to think, now, perhaps this young man is mentally ill. That might explain it. 
Or well, maybe yesterday he saw somebody who looked like me and the man had approached him in the library and asked him, what, what's the Latin name for the common wild duck? And he researched it and sees you today and say, hey, here's the guy, here's the name. That would make sense. Or perhaps the young man is a foreign spy waiting at that prearranged rendezvous and uttering the ill-chosen code sentence which will identify him to his contacts. Well, the first story is sad. The, third, the second is comic. And the third is dramatic. But the point is, if you don't get a handle on the story behind that little interchange, there's no way to understand the meaning and no way to know how to respond to him. If you call the police when it was just a simple case of mistaken identity, that'll be very embarrassing. If you pick a fight with someone who's a trained assassin, that could be disastrous. If you get the story wrong, your whole response will be wrong. Now, that's a humorous story. But what isn't humorous is if we get the story of life wrong, if, for example, we see life, we see the world mainly about ourselves and self-actualization and trying to find self-fulfillment, instead of seeing it as a story about God's love come to us in Christ, then we're going to get our life all wrong and all our responses wrong, especially the way we interact with everyone around us. I borrowed this story from Tim Keller in his book, Every Good Endeavor, and he borrowed this story from someone else who may have borrowed it from someone else. I don't know where it originated. But the premise behind that story is this. As human beings, none of us live life based merely on the facts of our experience. But rather, we base our lives on the interpretation of those facts. We, we create or we believe a narrative by which we make sense of everything else that we experience. This morning, I'm going to start an intermittent series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And as I preach from time to time, we'll be going through it. So we'll probably finish it up in about five years. We'll see. But so starting in Ephesians. And the first question I want us to think about this morning as we think about the author, the Apostle Paul, is what was the narrative behind Paul's life? How did he view his life and all the events of it. And so think with me about Paul's life. And he expresses a lot of this in 2 Corinthians. When he speaks of, he says, we were afflicted in every way, persecuted, struck down. He said the, the affliction we experienced in Asia was so, it utterly burdened us beyond our strength. We despaired of life itself. We, he experienced afflictions, hardships, calamities, countless beatings imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights. He was often near death. Five times he had the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. I was shipwrecked, spent a night and a day adrift at sea. Many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food. How in the world did Paul make sense of all that suffering? Then you add to that his own sinful past. He describes himself in this way. He said, I persecuted this way, this Christian way to the death. 
I did so many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I locked up many of the Christians in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. In raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So as Paul now is penning his letter to the Ephesians, this has been his story for the last 30 years or so. And right now, as he's penning this letter, he is in under house arrest in Rome. We see that in chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 1. So how do you think Paul would frame the narrative of his life, all these events? His repeated sufferings and his own awful sinfulness. Think about your own life, your hurts and disappointments, the losses and broken dreams that you've experienced. How do you frame the story of all those events? What overall narrative do you place them in? As human beings made in the image of God, all of us here today, from age 4 to 84, does that include everybody here? I don't know for sure. All of us are constantly thinking and interpreting. We're philosophers. We're theologians. We're interpreters. We're always trying to figure things out, make sense of things. We're constantly seeking to understand the events of our life in, in, in light of some overall story, some cohesive narrative. And we don't all come to the same conclusions, do we? Which is why two people growing up in the same household experience the same upbringing, the same basic circumstances, can come to very different, different outlooks on their upbringing. Because they've chosen or they believe different narratives, different stories by which they interpret and make sense of their experience. If we get the overall narrative wrong, we get the storyline wrong, will interpret all the individual events wrong. But if we get the overall narrative right, then we'll have hope even in the midst of disappointment. We'll have peace even in tragedy and joy even in pain and suffering. So let's read here the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. And my title this morning, the title for my message is Union with Christ your story from eternity past to eternity future. Union with Christ, your story from eternity past to eternity future. And we're going to think about three questions, and these are basically my three points this morning. What is Paul's narrative? What's the storyline in which he understands all the events of his life? So number one, what's Paul's narrative? Number two, What is the main idea here in these verses 1 through 14 that holds them together, that ties them together? And then question number three, what is your narrative, the narrative behind the events of your life? So Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So what is Paul's storyline? What is his narrative? I think he would say to us, Christian brother, Christian sister, my life is not defined by my current incarceration or by the stonings or shipwreck or all the sufferings that I've experienced in the last 30 years. Have those been difficult and painful? Absolutely. And at times I despaired of life itself. But these 60 or 70 years of suffering in this life, these are but a momentary ouch in light of the overall narrative of my life. All these experiences, as painful as they have been, constitute just one brief chapter in my story, which started in eternity past and will extend into eternity future. So what is Paul's narrative? His storyline is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. So point two, question two, what, what is, th- is there a theme? Is there one idea that holds this like a web that holds all of this together in verses three to 14? There are several blessings here and over the next, um, in the next few weeks, we'll be looking more specifically at them. But I want us to think today about is there one theme that holds them together like a web? And to do that, let me, I'm going to read some of these verses again, and I'm going to leave out a couple words, and it'll be really obvious. You'll catch on to it very quickly. But I'm going to leave, leave out a couple words, and then hopefully that will prompt some thought for us. Okay, so starting in verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us. We have redemption through Christ's blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. You get the point. What am I leaving out? There are too many cars going by and I can't hear you, but I assume some of you are saying, in him, in Christ. Now we can leave that out and it still makes perfect sense, right? It makes perfect sense. God has blessed us with every blessing in his heavenly places. 
He chose us before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to adoption as his son. It still makes perfect sense. We can understand those fully. But the implication when we leave that out is something that is terribly untrue and impossibly untrue. The implication is that God could give us any of those blessings directly apart from Jesus Christ. That you and I might stand before God and reckon with him just standing alone on our own two feet. Brothers and sisters, apart from Christ, outside of Christ, you and I are dead in our sins. We are the objects of his wrath, Ephesians chapter 2. We are under a curse, Galatians 3. We're his enemies, we're weak, we're ungodly, Romans chapter 5. And there is no way apart from Christ that a holy God could ever give such blessings as these to unrighteous people like us. There's no way without first devising a way to overcome all those obstacles to us entering into his presence. For us to saunter into God's presence on our own would be instant incineration. And the way he overcome all those massive obstacles was to choose us out of the world and to place us into his beloved son, Jesus Christ. And then Paul enumerates six amazing blessings, election, adoption, redemption, the climactic culmination of all things, our inheritance and sealing. And none of these, none of these would ever or could ever have happened to us outside of Christ. He first had to give us to his beloved son before he could give us any of these blessings. Rankin Wilborn in his book, Union with Christ. Some of you remember this. We, we did a men's study. That was our COVID study because we were, we were Zooming during COVID through, through this book, Union with Christ. And he writes, I was much more accustomed to thinking of Christ as a savior outside of me than as one who dwells within and had united his life to mine. Yes, I had heard the popular phrase, Jesus in your heart, but my primary understanding of the gospel was that Jesus had accomplished something for me, but separate from me once long ago. And then he quotes John Calvin, and say, who said, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us, and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of a human race remains useless and of no value to us. Christ had to become ours and to dwell within us. God had to place us in Christ if he was to give us any of these blessings. So how are we to understand this simple phrase in Christ? Two little words, in Christ, in him, so simple. Paul uses this over 150 times in his letters. 150 times. You know he never, Paul never once calls us Christians? The word Christians is only three times in the New Testament, all in the book of Acts. It was probably made first by enemies, scoffers, skeptics, who called them Christians. Paul never calls us Christians. He calls us saints. But he uses this phrase 
150 times to describe us who belong to Jesus, who have trusted in Jesus. So what does it mean? As I've read some things in, in this book and also others, and so many of them talk about the mis- this mystery, and Paul calls it a mystery. But it's, it's a mystery, so we definitely need to think about it cognitively and reasoning and thinking, but we're never going to be able to grasp this intellectually. Calvin said, For my own part, I am overwhelmed by the depth of this mystery. I am not ashamed to join Paul in acknowledging at once my ignorance and my admiration. Whatever is supernatural is clearly beyond our own comprehension. So let us therefore labor more to feel Christ living in us than to try to discover or comprehend the exact nature of that reality. Let us labor more to feel Christ, to experience Christ living in us than in trying to comprehend cognitively the exact nature of that reality. It's a mystery, brothers and sisters. And so the Bible uses more metaphor than proposition in trying to explain it. So Jesus talked about the vine, I am the vine, you are the branches, right? Abide in me and I in you. We have the imagery of the body of Christ, or every one of us, we are part of Christ's body. Figure that out. It's a mystery, and yet it's true. And then there's one of the greatest metaphors, the metaphors of marriage. What happened to Brock Hoover and Emily Dillon yesterday? They came as two people to their wedding, and they left as one. That is a great mystery. But that's reality, brothers and sisters. Just because we can't figure it out doesn't mean that didn't happen to Brock and Emily. That happened. And, and marriage is one of the metaphors of our relationship with Christ. Christ in us. We in Christ. Of every genuine believer, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, of his doing, of God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Union with Christ is your reality, brothers and sisters. You are united inseparately, inseparably to Jesus Christ. Sinclair Ferguson writes, when we become Christians, We do not merely receive a benefits package from Christ containing forgiveness, new life, new hope, and so on. Much more than that is involved. We receive Christ himself. I love that image. God doesn't give us a little package with a ribbon on and a bunch of little things to give us. He gives us Christ. And in Christ comes all the spiritual blessings. Rankin Wilborn then writes, the greatest treasure of the gospel, greater than any other benefit the gospel brings, is the gift of God himself. Nothing is more central or more basic to the Christian life than union with Christ. It is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. So again, trying to define it is is difficult and maybe just a very simple definition is the best that we can do. Union with Christ means 
if you are genuinely trusting in Christ, you are in Christ. And Christ is in you. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see you standing there in your sin and guilt. He sees you clothed in the righteousness and beauty of his beloved son. All that is true of Christ is now true of you, brother and sister. You are a beloved son or daughter because Jesus is his beloved son and you are in Jesus. You are in Christ. Christ died and you died with him. Your old identity as a sinner under the wrath of God destined for hell is gone. That identity is gone. Christ was raised from death and you were raised with him to a new life, to a new identity, to life eternal. Christ ascended to heaven to the right hand of God and your life, your identity is seated with him in the heavenly places, secure there forever because you are in Christ. Rankin Wilborn gives this illustration. He says, think about two superheroes, Batman and Spider-Man. Batman is a rich and strong guy with lots of cool gadgets. And so all his superpowers come from these external possessions, right? All kinds of fast cars and great stuff that he has. Spider-Man, by contrast, has a few accessories as well. But he is a superhero because of the spider powers he obtained when he was bitten by that radioactive spider. His nature has been changed. He now has a new power accessible within him. Christ in you makes you more like Spider-Man than like Batman. Because someone, something, someone alien to you has invaded your life from outside. He's entered into you and changed your nature. Christ is in you. You are in Christ. You now have a new power that you did not have before. You have a power that indwells you, that transforms you, that is making you like Christ. And that power is Christ himself. So our first question was, what is Paul's narrative? The second question was, what's the main idea here? As he explains his narrative, verses 3 to 14, the main idea in here is in Christ, our union with Christ. And so the third question is, what is your narrative? What is the storyline that you have believed or created behind all the events of your life? Is it the same as Paul's? Or is it something else? And there are a lot, a number of alternative narratives that people buy into, aren't there? There are a couple that are very prevalent in our culture that we bump up against almost every day in the movies, social media, just our interaction with friends that work in school. And I want us to think briefly about two of them this morning. The first is the Ziggy narrative. Remember Ziggy? Anybody read Ziggy cartoons? This is sort of the victim mentality, okay? One of my favorite Ziggy cartoons is he's looking in the mirror and he says, it's you and me against the world. Somehow I think we're going to get creamed. That's that victim mentality. The people with a victim mentality feels though bad things keep happening. Everyone's against us and everyone else is to blame for all the bad things in my life. And so even there might be things that you could do to help fix the situation. You don't take responsibility for anything because it doesn't matter what you do. Everybody's against you. 
Your choices have no effect on anything. The outcome's out of your control. If you belong to Jesus, brother and sister, that Ziggy mentality, that victim mentality is blatantly false. It is a false narrative that does not line up with how God has cared for you. It does not explain the events of your life. So that's one narrative, the Ziggy mentality or the victim mentality. The second narrative that is very prominent in our culture is the self-created narrative. Young people, our culture, it's telling all of us, but especially you, especially you as young people, it's saying your narrative, your story is not found outside of you. You're not going to get it from your parents or your family background. You're not going to get it from a belief in God, certainly not the God of the Bible. Your narrative, your life story that explains everything is found inside of you. Somewhere deep in your psyche where you get to look inside and you get to discover who you are, who you want to be. And then you create your own identity, your narrative. And then you live that out. And don't let anyone challenge it or tell you you're wrong. Because you create your own narrative. Young people, please resist that lie. Yes, we have feelings and emotions and questions that we need to talk through and sort through. That's for sure. But none of us will find within an inner narrative or an identity that is robust and sturdy enough to withstand the onslaught of life in this fallen, broken world. The world wants to convince you it's my identity, it's my story It's found in me, and don't you challenge it. But what happens in a few months, or maybe just a few days, when you feel a little differently about yourself, or you found out that that self-identity you created isn't working out so well, not making you feel fulfilled and significant like you thought it would. Brothers and sisters, the only narrative, the only storyline that will endure the storms of life is one anchored in the love of your heavenly father and given to you in the person of Jesus Christ. And that storyline extends from eternity past. It didn't start when you were born. It didn't start at age four when something difficult happened to you. It started in eternity past and extends to eternity future. And this is point four, from eternity past to eternity future. When Paul says in verse three that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, where does he go? Just as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world. Let's do play a little imagination game here, everybody. Imagine before there was anything, no sun or stars, No planets, no trees or flowers, nothing. God knew you. God knew exactly what you would be like. He knew that you would be a rebellious sinner who would shun him. And he chose to set his love on you, his affection on you. And he said, I want you to be mine forever. And he chose you. In 
Christ, verse 4 says. In eternity past, he placed you into Jesus Christ, his beloved son. 1 Corinthians 1.30 again, because of him, because of his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom from God and sanctification and righteousness. And at that same time, before he ever created anything, says in verse 5, he predestined you to be adopted as one of his sons or daughters. All of this before any of the events of Genesis chapter 1. Is there anything, is there anything anywhere, any time that comes close to being as glorious as that, brothers and sisters? The God of the universe, before time began, set his heart of affection on you. What greater identity, what greater storyline can you start with than that? He says, I am choosing you to be one of my forever children. So young people, teenagers, children, all of us, if you are genuinely trusting in Jesus, that's where your story began. That's where your narrative begins. Long before Genesis chapter 1, God set his affection on you. But your story doesn't merely have a beginning. It also has an eternal ending. And Ephesians 1 also tells us what our guaranteed destiny is in the future. So if you slide down to verse 11 just for, just for a minute. And Paul says in verse 11 that we have obtained an inheritance or we've been chosen to be his inheritance. And then in verse 14, he says, In him you also were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. In Carol's and my will, John, we do have a will, okay? We have designated that all the money and possessions that we have at the time of our death will go to our daughter and our two sons. John's probably not holding his breath for anything great there. But that, that's their inheritance. And while we'll do our best to, to try to preserve as much as we possibly can for them, uh, we hope there's going to be something, okay? But there is no guarantee that there will be anything there, right? So many things could happen, and, and it could be gone completely. Bro brothers and sisters, your heavenly fathers predestined he has predestined and guaranteed an eternal inheritance for you as his child and nothing not inflation not a bank collapse not sickness not even a nuclear holocaust absolutely nothing can take that inheritance from you because you are in Christ and Ephesians 2 verse 7 tells us that at that inheritance is so awesome it will take the coming ages, eons upon eons in eternity for God to show us all the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. How does the verse end? In Christ Jesus. So I'd be very surprised this week if one of us was approached by someone in a parking lot who said to us, what was it, kids? Histrionicus, histrionicus, histrionicus. If that does happen to you, you're on your own to figure out the narrative behind it, okay? 
But what won't surprise me and probably won't surprise many of us this week is that we'll be greeted by a mixture of pain and pleasure, blessings and challenges, joys and sorrows. They may come in the form of health issues, financial issues, relational issues. They're going to come, right? And because we're human, every one of us is going to work to try to make sense of that combination of joys and sorrows, delights and disappointments. We've got to put them in some kind of narrative. And if your narrative is wrong, then the result will inevitably be damaging to you and to those around you. Damaging through self-pity, despair, anger, lashing out at others, bitterness and accusation, having a victim mentality. But if you embrace your true narrative, brother and sister, the narrative that your heavenly father gives you here in Ephesians chapter 1, then your blessings and pleasures will result in greater joy for you and those around you. Your disappointments and sorrows, while hurtful, will not leave you devastated or hopeless. But like the Apostle Paul, who was locked down under house arrest, you will be able to say, Blessed be the God and Father of my Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed me in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. From eternity past all the way to eternity future. One final quote. Since every spiritual blessing that God gives us, he has given us in Christ. Why then would you look for God's blessing anywhere else than in Christ? Christ is the fountain and our union with him is the fountainhead from which All blessings flow. Christ is the fountain. And our union with him is the fountainhead from which all blessings flow. Come thou fount of every blessing. Let's stand and we'll pray together as we close. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us Christ. Thank you for giving us the greatest gift you could ever give us. There is no greater gift that heaven can give us than what you've already given us, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we have tasted and we've experienced the beginning of the blessings, wonderful blessings. And we know there are so many more to come that you have promised us. And because we are in Christ through faith in him, we know every one of those blessings will come true. All the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. Father, as we close here, I pray particularly for my brothers and sisters who are in the midst of suffering and difficulty. Lord, would you strengthen them? Would you sustain them with hope, knowing that this is just a brief chapter in the overall narrative of your love, your choosing of them, your adopting of them, your care for them, predestining them to an eternal inheritance which will never fade away. Lord, would you strengthen them? Would you encourage them today? Lord, for those who are struggling with trying to figure out a different identity, a different narrative, Lord, would you please show us the lies in these other narratives? Lord, where we try to look inside ourselves and figure things out, it just isn't going to work. Lord, turn our eyes away from ourselves to see Christ 
that you invite us and promise us that if we trust in you, we are in Christ and he is in us. Then, Lord, also for those who struggle with sin in the past, like the Apostle Paul, Lord, sins that grieve us and we have great regrets, would you help us to realize, amazing of all amazement, we have redemption in Christ, the forgiveness of our sins, that he has paid for everyone that we are right with you through him, your beloved son. So in his name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Thank you, church. You are dismissed and enjoy fellowship together and then a wonderful afternoon.